Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm based in the Washington, D.C. area, working as a program director with Peace Catalyst International. And as always, I'm joined with my co-host, Keith Giles. Uh, that's right. I'm Keith Giles, uh, working with Peace Catalyst here in El Paso, Texas. And um, I'm so glad that you are listening to this podcast today. We have a really uh, exceptional episode for you. Um, But before we jump into that, I want to say, if you really enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, would you please do us a big favor and take some time to go and rate and review the uh, the podcast on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you listen to podcasts, um, because it really does help boost our visibility and encourages other people to give us a listen. So it would really be wonderful if you would do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The more support, the better. And we know you love listening to us. So (laughs) (laughs) just click that button. Um, So, you know, we've been sharing peace quotes of the week every episode. And this week, I um, wanted to share a quote by Latasha Morrison, who is the founder of Be the Bridge, which is a racial justice reconciliation organization and also a book, um, which I highly recommend reading if you haven't already. But the quote is, um, repairing what's broken is a distinctly biblical concept, which is why as people of faith, we should be leading the way into redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. Mm. And I love that quote because it's so important to name that this is a biblical thing. It's not something that's, you know, extraneous or tangential or, you know, just made up by people who love the peace mm-hmm. building. Um, but it is biblical to seek restoration and reconciliation. And, um, you know, it's so important to name that for yeah. us as people of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that too. And I do think that it, we do need these kinds of reminders that, um, you know, Christianity, uh, maybe saying maybe specifically following Jesus is not a passive activity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, th- I used to say a lot when I, when I used to preach at churches, you know, um, you know, there is no bench. <laughs> There's no bench on, on the team, right? Of team <laughs> Jesus. Um, no one sits on the bench. If you're, if you're on the team, if you're wearing the Jersey, you're in the game, uh, like right. it or not, right. You're on the field, you're playing and you're yeah. necessary to, you know, the goal, you know, this, to mm-hmm. the, to the success of the, of the purpose or the mission. Right. And That's so, good. yeah, I think it's really good to, for us to be remembering that, that, um, so yeah, following Jesus is an act, is a verb. It's an activity. It's, uh, right. you know, we're not just spectators and, and if we're not spectators, then that means, yeah, what are we doing? Well, like like Latasha says in this quote, um, we are people who should be, you know, experts in restoration and reconciliation and redemption. We should be people who are, we ourselves are being transformed by this, right. you know, the indwelling presence of Christ. But, you know, it doesn't just happen to me alone in my house. Like if I'm truly someone experiencing this amazing transformation of being mm-hmm. in connection with God and with Christ, then again, it's not a passive thing. I, I, I'm going to be active. I'm going to be wanting mm-hmm. to be someone who is seeking uh, the shalom of people around me and uh, mm-hmm. and expressing that in very real, way, tangible ways. So I, I love that. I think that's really important. And that's kind of what we do, you know, uh, in this podcast is try to talk to people who are doing that in ways that inspire us to do more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great. And um, yeah, I love what you're saying about imagining, you know, what peace looks like and what role do we play in, in reconciliation and peace building as followers of Jesus. Yeah. It's so good. Right. And so, you know, we are currently in this uh, new series where we are interviewing Peace Catalyst International um members and, and uh, directors and staff members. And so um, we're getting to know Peace Catalyst staff around the globe and uh, asking them about their own peacemaking journeys and how they're building understanding and connection and collaboration uh, with their diverse neighbors for peace in their own communities. 
Yeah, and this week we are interviewing Peter and Liz Anderson, who are based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where they've been equipping and empowering community peacemakers um, and collaborating alongside those who are, are already building peace and working for transformation within their community. Um, and they've been drawing on their own experiences in ch- church youth ministry in Chicago, as well as Christian Muslim peace building in London and um, continual involvement in both community organizing and contemplative spirituality. Um, And they seek to help people develop holistic approaches to peacemaking on personal, interpersonal, and community levels. Peter and Liz, it is so awesome to have you both with us for this conversation today. And um, we'll just dive right in. (laughs) Can you guys tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what is your connection to Peace Catalyst? And maybe if you could just share with us maybe your story before you came to Peace Catalyst and then how you got connected. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us here. Um. So yeah, so we're in Minneapolis, um, Minnesota, and I am currently full-time with Peace Catalyst and kind of playing two roles. I am, um, I'm part-time as program director in the Twin Cities, um, kind of doing a lot of the networking and running our local work. Um, and then I also am part-time the director of formation with uh, Peace Catalyst. So a lot of the courses we run and kind of training events and workshops, um, either I run them or they come through me. Um. Cool. And I am part-time a program director here and part-time peacemaking through Raising the Next Generation because we have tiny humans who it turns out that uh, parenting is like a PhD in inner work that you didn't know you were signing up for with a major in conflict resolution. So we're also rocking that. (laughs) I love it. That's so great. And I know, Peter, your classes that you've developed are incredible. We have, you know, these taster sessions and I had the privilege of attending one last night on how we share stories to build peace, which was just um, really cool. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what was life like before you came to Peace Catalyst and what what was it that attracted you to Peace Catalyst? Why did you decide that, you know, you wanted to work with an organization like this? Hmm. I feel like that could be a really long story, but we'll, we'll keep it briefer. The nutshell. Uh, <laughs> We've got time. Yeah. <laughs> a long journey, y'all. Yeah, it's been a bit. Um, so before Peace Catalyst, um, we were working with a missionary organization in the UK, in London. Um, this, this is a group that kind of works worldwide, but we were invited specifically to work in London, where we were... Um, placed in the East End in a mostly Bangladeshi Muslim neighborhood, um, primarily, lower, primarily lower income. And um, we initially went there with the organization expecting to do kind of a fair amount of discipleship work and partnering with the churches and stuff like that. Um, and it wasn't too long after we were there as we got to know our neighbors around us and hear their stories and yeah, hear, hear their stories and just kind of identify like what some of the needs in our community actually were. Um, and in particular, recognizing who among our neighbors, Christians, Muslims, and anyone else was really reflecting the fruit of the spirit and really working for the good of their community. Um, we increasingly came to believe that what was really needed in our neighborhood was not so much more evangelism and discipleship, so much as a lot of working together for the common good, bringing people of different faiths together, building community, doing organizing where they could do projects together, Um, a lot of youth development and just thinking about how do we actually build up the next generation um, and develop leaders. Um, and how do we just build an ethos where these different communities 
were not isolated from each other, living separately, but where they could all look at the same neighborhood and say, we live here, these are my neighbors, these are the people around me, I can know them and I can live with them and I can work with them. Yeah, I think it was a really deeply transformative season for us as well, just in terms of, like I spent a lot of time trying to nail to the wall, like what, whatever spiritual journey you're on, like what kind of change do we expect to see in people's life in like a real tangible way? What does that mean the work of the spirit is is showing up here? Whether that's in our Christian neighbors or in our Muslim neighbors to try and really figure out like there's like a personal level of change and that was definitely happening in us and there's a community level of change and a systemic level of change. And if your faith has nothing to say to all of these levels and the ways that they play to each other, then I was sort of like, well, what are we doing if we're not digging into that really deeply? Um, and so, yeah, we, I would say, grew and stretched so much and we learned so much um, from our neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this also sort of put us at odds with our team and our organization. And as we were starting to have a really big picture vision for what Shalom meant, um, it really meant that we were also looking at an off-ramp from London and looking to transition back to the States. Mm-hmm. Before we had gone to London, um, we had been members at, and I had been on staff at a Mennonite church in Chicago. Um, and kind of our four years with them was also very transformative for both our idea of what a church could look like working and existing and caring for a local community. Um, but they also gave us a lot of framework and understanding for what peace had to do with the gospel and how central peace was to scripture and to the mission of Jesus. Um, a lot of things that we yeah. believed in sort of like a, uh, of course, this is mm-hmm. what it's all about kind of way, but that we didn't have language or models for like, it was uh, big up the Anabaptist. <laughs> like we moved five blocks closer to the meeting house because the center of gravity of the church, like, and people caring for each other was in this mm-hmm. walkable radius. Yep. We were living on the North side of Chicago and people were sharing like cars and sharing housing. Mm-hmm. And it was just this really beautiful experiment and what's possible. That sort of intentional community was that sort of intentional community and intention to live out the gospel with their neighbors was different than we had seen or experienced with most church examples before. Um, So we went to London with that kind of already in our spiritual DNA and our idea of what the church could look like and what the kingdom presence in a local community could look like. Um, And so as we started focusing more on, collaborating for the common good and doing interfaith peace building um, and just thinking more about how do we how do we focus on transformation in the community as opposed to just persuading people to believe something differently um, we, we found ourselves increasingly at odds with a number of the churches around us um, and our team itself because while our our theology and our practice was increasingly moving towards um, more of a peace-oriented posture. Um, Our organization and the churches we were around were talking more heavily about how to do evangelism and discipleship. And we just, um, after a lot of conversations and hard, kind of hard sorting things out together, we just, um, we all came to recognize that we were going different directions. So once our visas were up, um, we prepared to come back. I think a lot of the shift was moving to a real posture of companionship and accompaniment to say, we want to be walking alongside you in your journey, both spiritually and personally and with solidarity. Yeah. And I think so much, so much of my experience personally growing up in Christianity was really one of power over, right? Like we know better than you and you must accept that we have truth full stop. And if you don't, sorry. And to say, I think we learned a lot of humility in London and to say that the journey alongside each other, right, is really what what teaches us to care for each other and to lift each other up. And of course we can still disagree, but to, yeah, to be partners in a really true and deep sense with people whose backgrounds are different from mine. And I mean that like racially and religiously in a way that I had never experienced growing up in white suburban church culture. Um, so anyway, then we wound up in a sabbatical season and Peter was like, I want to go to grad school. And I was like, well, we have a baby. Okay. Like, <laughs> and, uh, in the meantime, we had connected um, with um, 
gosh, through a like series of unlikely events, we had been like tracking with Peace Catalyst for a little while. Um, and so we knew of the work and we were like, this is kind of weird. We're going on sabbatical. We're landing back in the States. And Rick Love, bless him, was like, of course you need to go on sabbatical. Of course you need to go to grad school. Like this is totally like, yes, you're welcome here. Um, and so we were um, starting to do some small things in Indiana under the Peace Catalyst banner while he was in school doing a master's in peace and theology, but also dreaming a little bit more of a place to plant some long-term roots and a place to start putting a lot of these frameworks um, together in a more robust way. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I love hearing your story because it's so... Um, it just really speaks to kind of a similar journey that I think a lot of us have been on in understanding the various issues affecting our communities and the need for shalom building. Um, and well, I was just curious if there were moments when you were in London, like what was kind of the catalyst for you, both of you, like making that shift mentally and then in the work you were doing or was it a series of things that kind of helped you to see the underlying conflicts or issues that were happening um yeah and what that looked like hmm that's a really good question i feel like i think we could probably come up with a lot of possible examples because that shift happened in a lot of pieces piling on top of each other um, and, and, and part of that, because we were coming with kind of our Anabaptist spiritual DNA, mm -hmm. we already had some of that embedded in us where like even the organization we were with was very focused on doing holistic ministry and caring for the whole community and caring for the whole person, um, and, and had a very contemplative posture in terms of how they went about it. Um, so there were, there were a lot of seeds of that, I think, that were already present when we arrived, and we just kept digging into it further than than some people were comfortable with us doing so. Um, I was going to talk about the feast. Well, I was going to talk about the feast. We were, awesome. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, so, that, that's a good answer. Yeah, yeah, well, we were hugely influenced. We wound up on um, the, the board, I guess you'd say, of this uh, scrappy little nonprofit um, that was based out of Birmingham called The Feast. And they have been doing interfaith youth work in a really deep and wonderful way for long, over 15 years up there. And Dr. Canada, Dr. Andrew Smith, who's now the uh, interfaith advisor to the Bishop of Birmingham, as you do, um, <laughs> just started bringing together a small group of Muslims and a small group of Christian teenagers in a room together because uh, he was at an interfaith panel once with a whole lot of old dudes. And he was like, this is real boring. And what we need is some youth group work and some teenagers and some pizza. And then this is, and he's absolutely right. Like you frame it up, you set it up. And um, the conversations these teenagers have are phenomenal. Um, and so we were starting to start a little outpost to that in our East London area that these folks have been doing in Birmingham for a long time. And we just learned so much through being part of that and um, about the teenagers really seeing each other as peers and people to learn from. Uh, I took a couple different groups of girls on some overnight camps, which was just the most beautiful and healing thing. Like we are like, it's midnight and we're meant to be telling you to go to sleep, but you're up talking about like the Trinity and arranged marriage. And I kind of just want to let you rolling. So um, and then we'll the next day, it's great. Um, but it really, and I think one of the things that um, Dr. Smed that Andrew said that really um, was a real moment of clarity for me was in terms of respect. He was like, I see, let's say a lot of churches in the UK, this was, but I think similar things happen here in America. Like, We'd be like, let's throw some kind of vacation Bible school and we'll invite all the unchurched or folks of a different religion to come and, you know, experience this thing. And he was like, if you wouldn't send your kids to a week long summer program at the mosque, right. like you should not be rolling like that here. It needs to be absolutely with the level of respect that you would want your children to be treated at with at the mosque. Yes. And I think that really I was like, mm, so you're telling me that a lot of our evangelism models are just inherently disrespectful. Yes. And I was like, yep. Okay. So I think for me, just watching these teenagers grow and blossom and form genuine friendships also just helped me shed a lot of my baggage. Um, and also just to watch them and be like, yeah, no, the world's in good hands with you all. Like you can run the world. I'm great with that. You girls, you 15 year olds, you carry on. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. That's so great. And you know, and so Liz, actually you made a comment a second ago, a while back 
that I wanted to ask if you would be okay to elaborate a little bit on, just because I think some of our listeners to the podcast might not be familiar with the difference between um, you use the model of you use the um, the phrase about the power over model, um, and I'm and and I know that's in contrast to the power under model, but can you talk about the difference between the two and um, just for again just for people that might be listening and not not exactly sure what you're referring to. Yeah, sure. I think a a lot of our a lot of our thinking has really shifted towards this and been clarified. Can, this. Can, can I clarify something on that real quick? Mm-hmm. Um, are, is is power under as you're talking about it different than power with, or are you mm-hmm. using those words the same way? Well, I'll let you tell me the difference. I mean, maybe I'm assuming that the, the opposite of the the, the, the the contrast of power over is power under. Maybe it's not power under; it's power with. So, yeah. However, you understand this. Uh, let's just say power over is the typical way Christians have approached evangelism and and uh, you know being being making a difference, quote unquote, in the community, etc. So, if we're moving away from power over. Uh, what are we moving? What, what's the alternative? And what, what in your, when your experience, what works and what doesn't? Uh, I'm going to let Liz respond to this since you were asking her directly and she's the well, one. Well, either one of you, that's fine. But, but I, I actually want to push back on your language just a little bit first. <laughs> you said Christians typically do this. In many cases, that's true. But some traditions and some churches of particular racial and ethnic backgrounds and heritages tend to do it more than others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some churches have a very colonial mindset. Yeah. That tends to do that a lot more. Mm-hmm. Others have it less. Yes. This will probably come up later in the conversation, but I feel like that specificity is really important that this isn't entirely a universal church issue. Well, let's just draw a real clear line here to say uh, we're baked in, like coming from an American perspective, right? America's dominant mode of the rest of the world. We have power over, like, let's be real clear about that. Let's also be real clear about the lens of white supremacy. Yes, we assume we have power over. That's how we roll. And white supremacy is so insidiously baked into that white people don't even know that they assume they have power over. It just is sort of Mm -hmm. like in the water. And so- there's like a Venn diagram of intersections there that, yeah, we should definitely be unpacking. And I would say, um, yeah, I think for us, so much of our thinking, especially as we've started to look more at systems and thinking strategically about justice and change and transformation, if we come from a place where we assume we have nothing to learn from other people, or we sort of assume it in like a lip service kind of way, but we generally you're just going to carry on doing what we already thought we should do because we think we know best. Um, Yeah. You can't build trust in relationships that way. You just come in as a colonizer and steamroll. And I would say, well, I am really grateful that our mentors in London taught us was actually, I would say to come from a posture of uh, power under, we would, we wouldn't call it that, but to say, you need to be a learner first. Um, Like when Mm -hmm. we got there, our mentor um, and leader was pretty much like, I want you to go out for six months and I just want you to listen and observe and interview people and learn. I want you to say no to everyone who's going to tell you to volunteer. And I was like, you can do that. Like she was just like, you don't know what the needs of the community are. You don't know that if someone's like, Oh, you should totally come and volunteer with X, Y, Z. You might be doing more harm there and good. You might not be needed there. Your time might get all eaten up and tied up and to say, really learn from your neighbors specifically in that context, we were there to, um, yeah, be under the leadership of our neighbors. And I think a lot of good community organizing comes from that place of, I'm going to posture myself in humility to you. And then that moves from there when the trust has been established into a power with that is a mutuality and a respect that has been earned and, and given freely instead of just assuming that people will respect you and that my ideas are the right ones. Because, yeah, I think Americans also especially are just trained to waltz in and have this big savior complex, which is proven rather unhelpful and messy when you try and untangle the detritus of that. Yep. Uh, Yeah. True. There are some significant theological assumptions that come with that power over model. And, and this is the part that comes with a lot of the, the, the the legacy and the curse of, of our white colonial past and where the churches fit into that. 
and no, you're making yeah, me think that, of just the Spanish missions and just all of all yeah, of that. that yeah, yeah. That, we have a lot of the theological heritage. We speaking as a white Protestant in North America, um, of a theology that doesn't know how to embrace mystery and doesn't know how to embrace that God is beyond us. We believe it. It's in our theology. We talk about it. But when it comes to brass tacks, we assume that we know everything we need to know about God. And it's our job to teach other people. And it is a massive difference in relationship and in approach and in theology to go from, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and tell you what you need to believe, as opposed to, I'm going to invite you into this relationship that I have with Jesus, with God, with the divine, whatever language you choose to use, so that you can start your own relationship. Here's what I find fascinating about what you said, and it's probably because I had a similar conversation with a friend of mine earlier uh, today, um, about how I think the way we... The way we as Christians um, imagine God to be, in other words, whatever your view of God is, tends to be the view that you will adopt for yourself and the posture you look set for yourself. So, for example, if you, if you, in your mind, if you think God is primarily wrathful and angry and vengeful and uses retributive violence to accomplish, you know, good in the world, well, then you're probably going to feel like that's okay for you to do that too, because I mean, God does it, so how could it be wrong for me to do it? But if you primarily see God as like more like someone who really looks seriously looks like Jesus, then then you look at God and you say, well, God is patient and loving and kind and giving and forgiving and merciful and, you know, all these things. And and if, if that's the way you think about God, then that's probably the way you're going to behave and the way you're going to think that you also then should, um, you know, relate to other people in the world. And um so, so for example, when you were talking about this, the difference between the power over versus power under or with, um, I think that I think that's where that comes from. At least for me, in, in part, right? I think if, in other words, if you think that, well, that's what God does. God is in control. God is the micromanager of the universe. Every molecule is under His control, and um, right. So all that. So in other words, like I think I think that this is related. Maybe it yeah. isn't, but I, but, I, but I think if that's how you look at God and you assume God is in absolute control, he has authority and power over other people, you just need to listen and do what he, what he said. And, and then that's the way you're going to think, well, this is how I should relate to people around me. However, uh, sorry, this is a long question. <laughs> but however, if you, if you tend to think, for example, that, you know, the kindness of God leads to repentance and you really embrace that idea, um, then you would have a different perspective. You would say, you know what? I'm going to just love people. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love others, love my neighbors, myself. Um, I'm going to express kindness and compassion, you know, love, joy, peace, you know, all, the, all those fruits of the spirit in my actual life. And as I'm being transformed by the spirit, I'm hopefully that's going to kind of rub off on people around me. And that's kind of my, that's what I'm hoping that's going to happen. So, I mean, do you, does any of that resonate with you? Do you think that that's sort of the right thing or, or is, would you nuance that a little, dip, a little bit? So I'll be interested to see what Liz has to say. This. <laughs> um, at the, as I'm hearing this, I'm both resonating and agreeing with what you're saying, but also the thought that keeps coming back to me is it's not about theology. Right. Mm. The way people read scripture the way people understand God, the way people understand their theology about everything that's happening in the cosmos beyond our perception is less about how they read their holy book and more about their culture and their community and the stories that they grew up with. They've been raised and have learned to see the world in certain ways and they've come to see themselves in relation to the world in certain ways. And that gets read into scripture. Hmm. And but, there, but, theology is absolutely all wrapped into that because our theology, say, isn't that theology, though? <laughs> our theology is part of our narrative, right? But it's also much bigger than that. It's not that yeah. people read the Bible a certain way 
and then they have these thoughts. It's just it's culturally it, situated. It's culturally situated. So, yeah. so it, it's more. If I hear what you're saying, it's more. If I hear what you're saying, you let me know if I'm if this is correct or not. I think what you're saying is theology is about more than you know what I read in the Bible. That it's that, but it's plus. Mm-hmm. What I've what I've been told and what's you know in, yeah. in the sort of the tribal knowledge of what I've yeah. picked up after being a part of you know mm-hmm. whatever Christian community I've been a part of yeah. uh, for most of my life it's etc. Yeah. Right. So, but, yeah. so in other words, theology is not defined merely as you know I believe these ten things on a statement of faith, but it's mm-hmm. it's that plus and maybe even more so weighted towards how it's the, the, like maybe the the orthopraxy and the orthodoxy right mm-hmm. how they come together. Yeah, and and just a brief note on that. This will be a whole other conversation. We'll get into, I'll do another podcast that, on this. <laughs> it it doesn't doesn't help on like on a surface level. It doesn't help that all of those voices are in the Bible. Oh yes, that's the right. Bible. The Bible is a combination of a lot of different theologies and, and voices right. over thousands of years. So anyone who's looking for it can find support for what they're thinking. So in a way, I think you're saying like it's as much of a mirror to us and our position, right? Mm -hmm. It reflects what we, like I did anthropology at school and so culture to me is like a filter, right? It's filtering out what's important. And so like you, what to go back Mm -hmm. to what you're saying, Keith, about power over, right? If your filter is telling you that control is very Mm -hmm. important, then those are all gonna bubble up to the top and everything else is gonna fall out the bottom. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really think so there's a reflection of us culturally and what we believe theologically, but there's also, I think then our image of God is reflected back to us and we become like that image. Mm-hmm. And I really, yep. and this was made mm-hmm. very clear to me when at our Anabaptist church in Chicago, we had a couple of um, legendary scholars who were leading us in some feminist theology. And uh, I think it's Mary mm-hmm. Daly who has a quote that says, if God is male, then male is God. Mm-hmm. And this blew the doors off for me. I read a book called, Is It Okay to Call God Mother? by a Southern Baptist preacher who wound up with the answer, yes, biblically, Hebraically, mm-hmm. in the Greek, if we are not calling God by the feminine, if we are not saying she loves us, we are doing a disservice to ourselves, to the book, to our, and there was a, I had very visceral reactions. Like I still do because I think female imagery for the divine is so demonized. So for me to say, well, what is your reflection of your picture of God? It changes something for me on like almost a cellular level, I would say, to be saying, well, if the image of God is female, if the spirit of God speaking to me is female, then also just because of all the stereotypes, you have a really different picture in your mind, whether God is big and powerful and angry or kind and gentle to put both of those from to say, all right, that is... Just so for me, that was a real crack in what the image of God that I had grown up with. And that continued to, you know, like the roots just kept sprinkling down into the concrete and chucking some more concrete chucks out of there. Things that were not helpful. And, yeah. you know, because I do think we we live out that that aspiration. Right. Of what are we modeling? And mm-hmm. like and I think about that in a very tangible way now as I am like parenting children and mothering mm-hmm. children and thinking about like, OK, well, this image of God for so father is so long, this image of God as mother and me being like the primary source of comfort and discipline also in their lives and just being like, yeah, that is a lot. And if we have not unpacked that, then we're in trouble. So, Oh my gosh. I, so I love well you guys. Said. This is so <laughs> great. So I love, I love it. Yeah. It's so good. Okay. I'm totally going to pivot. I love you guys. And you're so awesome. And I love the work that you're doing and was wondering if you could kind of give us a picture of what your life, your lives have been like in Minneapolis and sort of how you're plugged into the community there and the kind of the grassroots um, peace building you're doing and community development. If you could just talk about that and share, um, yeah, what that has looked like for, for you both. Hmm. So... Minneapolis has been a bit of a trip. Um, in the best way. In the best of ways. We, so because we had the benefit of going to grad school, or I, I, I did my master's and that kind of gave us a, a nice two-year buffer to figure out what we wanted to do and where we were going to go. We spent a long time kind of exploring different cities around the U.S. because we had the flexibility to kind of go wherever we wanted. 
Um, and we chose Minneapolis largely because we were interested in the large Somali community here. Minneapolis having the largest Somali community outside of Somalia itself. And I want to say explicitly from a way of partnering with and organizing with not in an evangelistic stance, but in a, we have a lot to learn and we know if we are not including folks Mm -hmm. from other backgrounds, then we're really missing Mm -hmm. a trick. One of the things that we appreciated the most about doing peace building and community organizing in London was that the Bangladeshi community was so large and so well established that they had to be treated as equal partners and equal community members in the work. Whereas, particularly if you look at Muslim communities around the U.S., in many cities, they're small communities. They're small groups of students or they're small groups of refugees or immigrants um, or they're kind of from diverse places and they're not coherent in the same way. And this is not universal, of course, but in many places in the U.S., just because of the way our immigration policies work. Um, so you tend to have a lot a lot more places in the U.S. where it's a small population that then the churches are trying to help as opposed to um, trying to do collaborative work with. Mm-hmm. Coming to Minneapolis and connect with an eye towards a Somali community, being so large and well-established here, um, really attracted us both because it meant we'd be working with them from that place of mutuality and from that relationship, um, kind of a solidarity base that Liz would talk about, but also because they're large enough that they wouldn't just be a group we are doing interfaith work with, but we could dive into a whole lot of intersectional issues. Um, being predominantly Black, I mean, we could dive into issues of racism. Um, there are, in some in some parts of the community, there are higher levels of poverty. So we could dry, dive into a lot of class and wealth issues, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of other issues. So this, with this interest in peace building and seeing real community transformation, mm-hmm. we, came, we came with an eye not just to do faith-based stuff, but trying to think about how they intersected with everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the question still driving us is mm-hmm. what does really transformative long-term change look like mm-hmm. on both that personal level in terms of just what does it look like for people to be getting free, like from whatever mm-hmm. is holding you back personally in your community and in the systems that hold you. And so, mm-hmm. so we landed here um, in the summer of 2019 and our networking was sort of centered around those things. I found an amazing group of Muslim women leading anti-racism workshops and attended some of those. And that was phenomenal we were really just starting to feel like, okay, like we're getting our hands around what the community looks like here and really in a season of learning. And then 2019 turned into 2020 and suddenly you couldn't talk to anybody or go anywhere or do anything. <laughs> right. And then in Memorial Day weekend of 2020, George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. And yeah. that was a big... A huge moment for our city. Um, we live a couple of blocks from where there are protests around the third precinct, the police station, um, that whole week. Um, and eventually the police, um, they abandoned that station and the protesters broke in it and it went up in flames. And there is a whole <laughs> lot of grief and angst. And um, it's important to note here that five years prior, I believe in 2015, Jamar Clark was murdered by police in this same city. And so Minneapolis has been having this conversation for the past five years. People were camped out at the fifth precinct then for a couple of weeks trying to say, you know, what we need here is deep systemic change. And all the reforms that people have been trying to make for the past five years have clearly not had any effect in Minneapolis. Um, So that really, that really shifted. Um, Mm -hmm. All the things that we thought we were here to do were suddenly part of this larger conversation about what does justice and accountability look like for this, um, for the black community, for people of color here who have historically um, Mm -hmm. gotten not just the short end of the stick, but um, been systematically disenfranchised and oppressed Mm -hmm. in this place. Um, And so... Mm -hmm. um, like part of that is reflected right now in the conversation around um, what does it mean for public safety to be something other than police only. And Minneapolis is about to vote on this November. The words defund the police and abolish the police are really part of this larger picture of 
what does it mean to be safe, no matter who you are in this city? If you are a mentally ill person of color and someone calls 911 right now, you get a cop. What happens instead if you get a social worker or someone who's trained in having conversations in de-escalation or someone who can get you the help that you need, not just in like a we can send you to a shelter kind of way, but so to say, okay, we're really reimagining on a citywide level, what do we want as the future for keeping people safe so that they can thrive and flourish in our city? Uh, a lot of 2020, the, the past year, I think has been a significant place of both shifting and growth for us. Um, when George Floyd was murdered and when the uprising here kicked off, Mr. Floyd was murdered a five minute drive away from us, just a neighborhood over. Wow. The third precinct, the police station that was burnt is literally two blocks away from us. I had another job at the time and was able to stop at the protests and see burning buildings when I would ride to and from work. Wow. We had we had tear gas wafting through our backyard. Um, so we were in this really challenging, peculiar place where we were physically in the middle of a lot of stuff that was going on, but we didn't have the relationships or the concept or the understanding of what was going on in the city to know what to do with it. Yeah. So it actually felt very, uh, our, our background in peace building was primarily focused on kind of personal transformation and interpersonal relationships. Um, and we had some theoretical understanding of like what, what needs to happen on a structural level and what does justice in a city or society look like? Um, but we'd had very little experience or very few tools to fall back on to think about how do we actually show up in a useful way for, um, for what was going on and particularly to be able to be, be present and active alongside vulnerable and marginalized communities. Um, and that launched us kind of over this past year into a lot of thinking about and exploration, figuring out how to show up of how to address those structural issues and do it in a way that both integrated personal change and interpersonal relationships and structural change all as one picture of what social healing and liberation for everybody um, could look like. Mm -hmm. A big part of this journey has been figuring out our place in all this and then figuring out how to help other people find theirs too. Um, and, and our journeys on that have been a little bit different. Whereas I'm coming from this as a well-educated middle-class white male with a whole lot of cultural assumptions, both what people assume of me and my own assumptions as I come into these scenes. I'm really fortunate that before all this kicked off, I was in a place where I was connecting with some of the right people and doing some of the right work myself just to start working on a lot of the healing within myself to address what does it mean for me to be male? What does it mean for me to be white? What does it mean for me to be coming from this heritage of colonizers and of settlers? Um, and yeah, this, this long heritage of both, both racial and cultural and religious supremacy and how that has affected, how, how that's affected my thinking, how that has affected how I've seen other people how it has affected what I've assumed of myself. Um, so even before um, George Floyd was murdered, we I, I, I had been part of starting a group called MEND, a praxis circle, a, a circle where four white men to come together and practice empathy and practice reconnecting with their bodies and understanding what their feelings inside of them are telling them and understanding what does a restorative, transformative, healthy community look like um, and basically how to do it different and intentionally being anti-racist and anti-patriarchal in the midst of that. Um, recognizing that we want to live into a different, more flourishing society for everybody. And in order for us to do that well, we have to do the work on ourselves first. So after the uprising started, our group tripled in size. We had a lot of people who showed up and were wondering, what on earth do we do? How do we get involved in this? Um, and that kind of launched into a lot of other relationships. Um, and, uh, and and I'll say for, for me, in this case, um, 
that's yeah, that's gone in a lot of direct directions. So, but I have men in another kind of racial healing circle where we're getting people together to kind of sort through this internal work and understand what's going on together. Um, I volunteer regularly with a group called Nonviolent Peace Force, um, doing both trainings and showing up at protests and events where we are intentionally taking a nonviolent posture um, and providing safety for civilians who are in those settings. And it, that, that's a key useful way for me to um, use my background and use my, my identity as a place to provide safety for others. Um, increasingly involved with a group called Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, which their entire purpose is to get white people involved in work for racial justice and to learn how to show up in solidarity with, with communities of color, particularly black and indigenous communities who have been doing this justice work for a long time. And often we just haven't paid attention, which is why the uprising happens because we ignore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, briefly, I think what I've been thinking about a lot is, um, I took this amazing training with a local elder, Ricardo Levens Morales, talking about the soil strategy. And the idea is that like all of our projects and organizations and things we want to bear good fruit, our seeds we're planting in the soil. But if your soil is maybe not so healthy at the moment, like say if some people have been coming by to pour bleach into it every night for the past 20 years, nothing's gonna grow. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like for our cultural soil to be regenerating itself? And so I'm thinking really long-term about like, what books do I read the kids and what um, what healing needs to take place and what will make ideas sticky. So I, um, I do community song leading and I've been leaning into that more. Um, I have been catching and writing some songs lately about the world we want to see and thinking about the role of our singing in different movement spaces. Um, and thinking about like the healing that takes place when we sing and how that is something that can help to motivate us and set us free. And so there's a couple other song leaders I've connected with and we're all um, mixed race people of color and we're starting a song circle specifically for people of color to come and have a space for healing and to be thinking about justice and movement work together. Um, So I'm excited about that. And if there's like an overarching kind of framework that's really shaping a lot of the places we're plugging into now, We've always, for a long time, we've been shaped by this vision of shalom and what does it mean to be actively building peace. Thank you to the Mennonites for giving us that framework in the first place. Um, (laughs) At this point, we frame that a lot under the, we we frame that a lot now as collective liberation and collective healing. Um, And wanting, this kind of gets to the power over and power with difference too and wanting to get to this place where we don't see these social issues going on as other people's problems. Racism in the U.S. is not something that the Black community has to deal with or is responsible for dealing with. It is something that harms all of us. It harms me as someone who has benefited from proximity to that power. It still is harmful to my soul, it's harmful to my relationships, and it's harmful to my understanding of what a healthy, flourishing society looks like. So if we want to invite people into the work of building Shalom, people need to be liberated and healed within themselves. They need to experience that in their relationships, and they need to step up and do that alongside everybody else for the good of everybody. Mm, and, that yeah. starts, and that starts with... That starts with recognizing how that impacts them and what their own story and history have to say about it. And that starts with the humility of understanding that maybe I need to stop and listen to other people too and learn for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's shifting from that place of guilt and shame to a place of compassion and a concern for justice and a concern for the well being of everybody, mm. including ourselves. It's incredible. Thank you both so much for sharing. And um, I'm so inspired personally by the work that you're doing and the way that you're doing it. Um, So thank you both for sharing with us and may we all, um, yeah, seek to collaborate with and, and, and be with people and, and build peace um, together. 
Thank you. Wow, that was an amazing conversation. Um, I hope I hope my our listeners are still with us because that that was <laughs> we went to some really interesting places there. And uh, but I really loved yeah. uh, that conversation with Peter and Liz. So inspired by the work that they're doing, and yeah. uh, not just the work that they're doing, but the way they're doing it. And I think that's that's really inspiring to me. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And I love their authenticity. I feel like just getting to hear their authentic selves and stories and experiences and how they've come to a place of approaching, you know, they talked about freedom seeking and and, um, and collaborating with people in the community and yeah, just coming alongside those who are, are seeking change. And it's, um, it's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, there's so much there to unpack. Um, but I think like one of the things that, you know, like when Peter and I were going a little bit back and forth about like that it's not about theology or kind of like clarifying how how our theology is not, it's not just a statement of faith or, you know, a list of things I believe. Um, but that for a lot of us, our theology is a combination of, yes, things that we believe, but also some cultural behaviors and things that are modeled for us and how those two things kind of work uh, together to inform our theology. Because I think our, our, uh, you know, the things that we do, the ways that we behave, uh, that is part of our theology. And I think that's important as well, Mm -hmm. because, you know, for better or worse, kind of going back to our our peace quote uh, at the top of the podcast, um, you know, the, show me what you do and I'll show you what you really believe. Right. So like we, for better or worse, the things that I am currently doing and active in, um, Mm -hmm. that is what I believe. Right. If I'm really not involved at all in, in my community, if I really don't, um, show any real compassion to people around me, if I'm not listening to people, um, you know, we talked about sort of the power with and power under versus power over, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of those things are reflections of what I do believe. And, um, so it's not just, oh, you know, I believe, what do you believe? Well, I believe blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, but included in that is the things I may not say with my mouth, but the ways that, the ways that I live my life Mm -hmm. is a reflection of that. And that's really, that's challenging. And, um, but I think it's a very important thing for us to do and just take that time. I mean, it it makes me do this. It makes me stop and reflect, um, how, how, how is my faith truly reflected in the way I love my neighbor uh, as myself, you know, and I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I'm reminded as we're talking about, we have this monthly scriptural reasoning group with Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and we have a, a rabbi in that group. And he was explaining how you know, in his experience of the Reformed Jewish faith tradition, um, there's much more of an emphasis on doing what's right and doing what's just as opposed to believing what's right or believing, you know, the right way. It's like, even if I don't believe it in this moment, like God is pleased if I do it. And I think that in I mean, my understanding of the Christian faith is that those two things work together, like belief and action, right? You know, Paul said faith without deeds is dead. But if we're not um if we're not allowing them to work together, then we we could be missing out on all that God has for us um in in our lives and in, you know, who he's calling us to be. But um I think, yeah, and I, I've received this similar kind of discipleship in terms of I, I'm specifically thinking of in college, like my campus ministry would always say, I'm going to worship even if I don't feel like it, you know, and yeah. say what say what's true before I believe it and things like that. And I think sometimes if we do take those steps of action and, and knowing what's right, what's just, and um, even if we're not necessarily our beliefs or our understandings haven't caught up with that, if we do it, then sometimes the understanding follows and... Anyway, that's just, you know, my own kind of understanding, my own two cents, but. <laughs> I love that. Actually, yeah. what you reminded me too is um, there's a, there's a little, it's kind of obscure, but you reminded me of it. Um, Jesus tells a little bit of a parable um, about two sons 
and the father asks both sons to go work in the field. And the first son says, I'll do it. And the second son says, no way, I'm not going to do that. But then later, the son who said, I'll do it, well, he never gets around to it. And he actually ends up not doing it. And then the the second son who said, I'm not going to do it, thinks about it. And then he decides, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And then he goes out and works in the field. And so, you know, Jesus' point is, which of them was faithful? The one who said, I'll do it and didn't? Or the one who said, I'm not going to do it, but who who actually did go and and do the thing? And um, I think that's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's sort of like, does it really matter if I publicly, loudly proclaim, here's what I believe and here's what I think is important if I never, ever do anything about it? Or isn't it better if like, who cares if I say anything about it? If I'm actually out there doing something that actually does, you know, bring uh, hope and reconciliation and restoration and, you know, right. uh, all those things, which is what we're supposed to be about. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. And even not having to explain why you're doing it, you know, <laughs> Just, <laughs> right? like, oh, here's the theological justification for why I'm working for justice. No, like, yeah. well, also what I really liked was the conversation um, about, and this might be something that I think some of our listeners might wrestle with, but, you know, this idea of sort of, you know, on a holistic vision of, of how we bring shalom. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I, I think it's, I guess what I think is important is for us to consider, like, if this is a different idea, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, cause you know, Peter and Liz talked about, um, they're wrestling with, you know, at their church, you know, before, like, um, you know, between like a, just straight evangelism versus just the, the only thing that's important is just getting people to pray the prayer kind of a thing versus right. like, well, no, we want to actually go beyond that. And we want to create community and build shalom and connection mm-hmm. and spend time listening to, to people, not just converting them and all that. And I, I think what might be helpful, like if that is something that if, if people listen to that and go like, I don't know about that. I think a better way to think of it is like, you know, like this is just another way to approach this. We're not, we're not saying one's good, one's bad. It's more like, um, consider like, okay, there's this one way of doing it, which we've all grown up being, you know, uh, being aware of that and being exposed to this, this one sort of strategy, uh, this one approach. But then there's Mm -hmm. this other approach that, you know, that, that they're talking about, Peter and Liz are talking about Mm -hmm. that really it's a big part of what peace catalyst is all about. And it really is just another way of doing this thing. And, but it's a yeah. way of doing it um, that at least at least I feel like, and I think people involved with Peace Catalyst would say, it is more holistic because it is involving right. not just the things I believe, but it involves me um, as the person doing it, most sort of the, the follower of Jesus. It involves me living out, again, it's very much what we're talking about. I'm living mm-hmm. out my desire to be a peacemaker, living out my right. desire to follow Jesus, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to, to embrace my identity as an ambassador of reconciliation and saying, well, then how do I do that? Right. And right. as we're doing that, to do it with integrity and to do it in a way that's respectful of the people that we are ministering yeah. to, right. um, you know, we mm-hmm. don't, we don't clobber them over the head. We don't, we don't draw these lines in the sand and say, you know, you gotta, you gotta mm-hmm. do this or, or, you know, nothing. Right. But to right. come alongside them and befriend them and love them and listen to them and accept them and all the right. things that I think Jesus did and would ask us to do, right, as we're following yeah. him. Absolutely. And respecting, you know, respecting different cultures, respecting where people are coming from and understanding their own journey and, you know, how that fits with with um, the kind of friendship that, you know, we may want to build with them. And I think, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting example that, they had mentioned, I think Liz mentioned it about, you know, if you're going to invite your Muslim kids to a church, you know, I'd expect you to treat them with the same respect that I would want you to treat my Christian children who go to your mosque. Um, and that was a really powerful example of, um, yeah, understanding that mutual kind of respect. And like you're saying, working towards holistic restoration um, that God invites us into, that reconciliation. And not yeah. just top down imposing, you know, here's what you need to think and here's what you need to believe. And, um, yeah. And yeah, 
No, and I love that example too. That should, that was a really great example, right? About, you know, unless you as a Christian parent would feel comfortable sending your child off to some, you know, Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim camp, um, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, put yourself <laughs> in the shoes of the other person for a second. Yeah. Like, think about that. Would you, do, would you ever do right. such a thing? And right. if you were, if you ever did such a thing, wouldn't, wouldn't it only be if you had a pretty reasonable level of assurance that if you right. did such a thing that your child wouldn't come back and say, I'm a Muslim now, or I'm a Hindu, right? <laughs> or you'd be like, what? No, you're not. Like, what have you done to my kid? So obviously, right. Let's be respectful. And um, so here, so let me just say a, like another, because uh, again, as we were having this conversation, something popped into my head. So, you know, my wife, Wendy, and I spent a long, long time in Southern California working with people that were homeless and people that were um, mm. families that were living in motels and things like that. And one of mm. my heroes um, during that time was a woman named Jackie Pollinger, uh, which, by the way, she's a phenomenal. She's still alive. She's in Hong Kong. There's a book mm. she wrote called Chasing the Dragon, which I believe is still in print. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Go check that out. It's a phenomenal book. It's just She has an amazing mm. story. But one of the things I learned from Jackie, um, and mm. she was working with, you know, drug addicts and homeless people in, in, uh, in uh, Hong Kong, um, mm. she, she had this moment where, you know, she was doing all this great work. I mean, really just coming alongside people living on the street, people that are addicted to heroin, uh, mm. you know, people that were homeless and things like this. Mm. And, um, and she, there was a moment where she felt like the Holy Spirit asked her, um, could you continue to minister to people like this, people who are drug addicts, people that are living on the street, people that are struggling this way? Mm. Can, you, can you minister to them? Can you re- genuinely love them? Even if you knew in advance they would never mm. pray the prayer and become a Christian. Wow. And that was a big deal for her. It was sort of like, why am mm. I doing this? You know, mm-hmm. like, am I only doing this so that they will pray the prayer and become a Christian? And so if I knew in advance, this person, this particular person mm-hmm. is never going to become a Christian, but they wow. are desperately in need of someone to love them and come alongside them and, and befriend them and be there for them because nobody else is in the world is there for them. Wow. Um, so it's a wonderful question, so right? Because yeah. it really, I think, it, and this is the kind of question I think I had to ask myself. And I think anybody who's doing this kind of work has to, every believer, I think, should ask themselves these kinds yeah. of questions. Am I befriending this person only? Mm-hmm. Others, I, have a, I have an agenda. I have, an, I have a, some right. other ulterior motive. Right. Uh, or, or let's say, you know, the Holy Spirit told you, hey, by the way, that person is never, ever going to pray the prayer and, and mm-hmm. become a Christian. Mm-hmm. See, I don't think that that's why Jesus tells us to do those things. I don't think that's why yeah. Jesus says, you know, in Matthew 25, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was in prison, mm-hmm. you came to visit me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was mm-hmm. thirsty, you gave me something to drink. It's not, right. there, there's no asterisk there so that, 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 you know, this person, but no, no, no. It's genuinely right. because you were so filled with the love of Christ that when you mm-hmm. saw somebody suffering, you couldn't keep walking and ignore right. them, right? It's the, it's the, what does it say? You know, the, the love mm-hmm. of Christ compels us. Yeah. It's the love of Christ that compels us to love people, to serve people, right. to befriend people, not with an agenda so that, mm-hmm. but simply because we are people who have been so loved by Christ and we have been right. so transformed ourselves by the love of Christ. And we are right. so filled with this love of Christ that we can't help but love other people. And I think if we so can good. really experience that and get that, then then everything flows out of that. Then we can, mm-hmm. we can with real integrity, Love people, whether they're Muslims or Jews or Hindus or atheists or whatever. It, mm-hmm. th- th- those things don't matter to us. We just love right. them because they're people made in the image of God. Um, so good. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, um, and I just saw this the other day and it really hit me in a way I never, never thought of it before. There's this beautiful story in the book of Acts where, you know, Peter you know, he has to, God shows him the vision three times of the, uh, the unclean food and the spirit says, kill and eat. He goes, oh no, Lord, I've never, never eaten anything unclean in my life before. But this is yeah. a metaphor for Peter, right? The spirit is showing right. him these unclean animals as a right. metaphor for the Gentiles. And, and right. out of this, Peter finally gets it. Oh my gosh, the, 
this gospel, this spirit, this love of Christ is intended for everyone, not just Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And then as he has that epiphany, this is, this is the, the sentence. This is what he says. He says, after all that's over, this is how Peter summarizes his experience. He says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane Mm. or unclean. Mm. Um, That is a profound realization. And I think the church in America needs a similar epiphany. (laughs) We have to have a (laughs) similar revelation that no one in any, any category, I don't care what you, what box you would put somebody in. No one. In other words, God should show you the way he showed Peter. God should show all of us the way he showed Peter that we should never call anyone profane or unclean yeah. uh, because yeah. in God's eyes, they're not. And, and right. they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be to us either. That's so good. That's so good. And, you know, it's, I think, you know, what Peter and Liz are doing in Minneapolis, like the work mm-hmm. that they've done, the ways that they've approached peace building totally fits with, with um, what you're saying and, you know, mm-hmm. how they've just loved people because they're God's created in God's image. And it's an act of worship. Like you're saying, when we give, when we feed the, the hungry, when we give to the poor, like we're doing, it's as if we were doing that to Jesus and it's, it's an act of worship. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of the Peace Catalyst podcast, please rate, subscribe, follow us on social media, join our Facebook group. It's called Peace Catalyst Podcast. Um, We'd love to chat with you there and even get some ideas from you about episodes that you'd like to hear. Um, And if you'd like to support our peacebuilding work at Peace Catalyst International, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thank you. Thanks a lot.